0: Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on, a long time ago. I spent, I worked on a little movie, <laughs> just a little, little tiny Japanese movie, and uh, and we have some behind the scenes. It's a good way to show how not even a big visual effects uh, movie still has lots of visual effects shots. And so we'll go through a couple of those in the second hour. Um, Remember, A reminder that you can ask questions all the way through the hour. The best time to ask questions is before 5.30, but it doesn't mean that that's the only time to ask questions, 5.30 Pacific Standard Time. Um, but uh, it's, it, you can ask questions throughout the entire show. In fact, in the second hour, you'll be. I'll be stopping all the time and And answering questions as I go Um, and so but make sure to jump in get those questions in now if you can uh, and make sure to vote on the questions Uh, they make a difference that you're defining the run of show as the live viewer as the producer so so you you get to decide what that is but that means vote the questions that you want up vote the questions that you don't want down (laughs) and it's going to help guide us on how we uh, actually make that work all right let's go ahead and jump into the questions Keely what do we have?
1: Our first question comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Is there a budget cinema lens or lens line that panelists recommend for a Blackmagic Pro Cinema? I've now forgotten for running gun documentary shooting, or do pre- people prefer to stick with still lenses like the Canon twenty four to seventy millimeter f two point eight? What are the pros and cons of each?
2: Go, ahead, Jason. If you need um, a mid-zoom, you're going to be really hard-pressed to replace the 24-70 to 70 from Canon 2.8. Sigma will save you about $500. It's not quite as sharp, but it should get the job done. If you're willing to go to primes, I love the 100 millimeter prime. But again, you are going to be constraining yourself quite a bit um, any time you go to any prime. So if you can swing it, great. If not, you're going to be hard-pressed to beat it.
3: Go ahead, Bill. And still lenses are a little bit of a problem for me if I'm actually doing run and gun, because in run and gun, I don't know what my shots are going to be. Every time I go out and approach a subject, I don't know whether I can physically get closer to it or I need more reach. Uh, Broadcast lenses, B4 lenses, and even camcorder lenses that have a zoom ratio that are uh, stronger than the typical still camera lenses that we often use can be a better solution. They also have better servos in them and they tend to allow you to creep in slowly or pull back slowly, which is nice from an aesthetics point of view. If you are going to use still lenses and put them in there, most people use any some sort of focus assist and or a zoom uh, geared system to kind of mirror some of the things that a camcorder lens or a broadcast lens will have. So those are useful for you. Those Canons are fabulous. Even the kit lenses. I've, uh, if I go out to shoot, I probably am going to take my F4, which is not a particularly fast lens, but the Canon 24-105 to 105, because I like the fact that it has good reach and good wide back end. And I understand how it works and it's useful for me. Yeah, as
0: far as a cine lens, uh, or as far, as far as a zoom lens, is the the, one, the group that you wanna think about or the, the group that I think about for most production is a 16 to 35, a 24 to 70, 70 to 200. And that's gonna cover most of what you need. You might get a 100 to 400 as far as a Canon lens. And that's gonna give you an enormous range. You get a doubler for that and and you're kind of set for most shooting that you need to do on a budget. Um, And you can get, there's a lot of different versions of those. It's not quite a budget if you buy them all from Canon as L series, but but, but it is cheaper. As you go into cine lenses, they get a lot more expensive really fast. Uh, So you get really sharp cine lenses. You're talking three to $5,000 a a lens typically. Uh, One place that one company that does make uh, cine lenses that are more affordable is Rokinon. So you can look at Rokinon. They're not quite as sharp as some of the other ones, but they are solid lenses. I've definitely used them in a variety of areas. And so, if you're looking for a cine lens with the geared, with uh, you know, gears and the ability to do follow focus and to be able to run it with motors, all those things, you might want to look. And if you're looking for a budget, you may want to look at Rokinon. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Yeah, one more thing I didn't mention was parfocal lenses as opposed to standard uh, still camera lenses. Parfocal lenses maintain their focus through the zoom range. So on a good camera, you'll set a back focus, which is a process. And once you do that, whether you zoom out wide or zoomed in really close on a subject, that subject will stay in focus through the whole process. That is really useful on run and gun.
0: Although a lot of us are, you know, if you're doing run and gun, if you're doing documentary, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us when we do filmmaking aren't aren't zooming during the shot <laughs> so, so usually just remember when you're doing live production you do that a lot when you're doing uh, production when you're doing documentary interviews so on so forth uh, um, my, my brother often says, this is, this is my zoom, and he moves his feet around. <laughs> you know, so, so that's, um, uh, and so, so you, wanna do, you do want to think about moving the camera when you're doing cinematic work as opposed to changing the focal length of the lens. So when you're doing live production, we change the focal lengths of the lens all the time. When we're doing cin- uh, cinema work, we tend to not do that. And so that's why you can get away oftentimes with, you know, regular still lenses, because you just got to get it there and get it in focus. Um, yeah, so so those are some, some things to look at. And also a reminder, when you get to a point where it really matters, get a lot of these lenses, but think about renting, um, borrow lenses, um, you know, and then there's a lot, you know, if you're really serious, you're going to go to Able Cine uh, in New York or LA or other things like that, and you're going to buy, you're going to rent the lenses. I don't, I don't buy, I have lots of little lenses that I use on a day-to-day basis but I rent when I when it matters. I'm renting Super Speeds um, K35s, Agenu, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, those are the things that we that we start to rent uh, for the day, and um, and rather than trying to buy them because a lot of them are ten, twenty, eighty thousand dollars a unit. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia, in an effort to use the community experience of LinkedIn audio events, which can't be saved and capture video for post-production, should we simultaneously have the speakers on Zoom to record? What would you do? Go Keely. Okay, so it was what would you do, which means my answer may not be the right answer for many other people. I'm not the Zoom expert, so that's not the option that I would naturally default to. I would use probably a combination of several things because I like redundancy. I would first stage the event in Ecamm and I would have everybody calling in via their browser as guests using the interview mode on eCam, and capturing all of that material. I would also, if my guests were savvy enough, I would have them trying to record on their ends as well. So for example, if I'm recording a podcast with a whole bunch of e-camers, I would have them recording their virtual cameras in e-cam as well. So we have their local copies saved in high quality in case something goes wrong with the entire video and audio out there. So those are the alternatives that I would elect if I had to make sure to prioritize the video capture.
0: And what's the maximum number of people that uh, that you can bring in for e-cam?
1: Currently it's 10 guests. It's great. It's
0: great. I go with Jeffrey.
4: So the biggest problem I see in doing more than one thing audio video wise is the fact uh, that not everybody has a very powerful computer. So they're just barely uh, edging on with well, and what it doesn't doing sound like,
0: and you, it sounds like they're just doing audio events. This is just an audio
4: event. So I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, but she's you know, asking video. she's asking if she uh, should add Zoom to record. Mm-hmm. Which would mean that people would have to get into Zoom as well. Right. So that's the only concern that I have is that I make sure that they have a machine that's going to be able to handle something like that, uh, especially if they're using, uh, you know, or if they're on their iPads rather than on uh, on a computer itself.
0: Yeah. And it depends on what kind of computers that they have and so on and so forth. If you're, if you're on a Mac and you have a budget and you're going to do this regularly, I probably think about audio hijack. <laughs> so the audio hijack loopback system is a great one to just kind of you could just literally have those conversations. You could have everybody easily double end it. You could easily record all those all those files as well um, on on your end uh, by talking in a variety of different tools out there. There are um there is a, a couple of podcast tools and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but you also want to look at that um where you can have there are podcasting tools that are designed to record double end from the web. You basically open up a web page and I think it's like DLTV or DTLT DTLV um, and there's another one that I've been brought into for that type of thing. Uh, because I have a lot more tools, I don't tend to use it as much, um, but uh, that is another thing to look at. If you're just trying to record the the actual show, uh, again, Loopback is a great, Loopback and Audio Hijack is a great way to do it on the Mac. I have less tools on the PC. I just don't know what you would use on the PC, but on a Mac, you would use those two tools and you would record out um, you know, from those. You can also, uh, with a phone, um, if you have, I mean, to get really geeky, uh, if you have a phone, you can take the phone output and record that um, out. And, and sup- the super geeky version is to cur- take a Bluetooth to Dante and have your phone pair with it, and it'll send it in and out and record everything for you. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from panelist Tony Mobley in. Uh, Noonan, Georgia. I have to create a playbill for a house of worship production in a theater. This is a first for me. And I was thinking of doing it in either Canva or pages. What does the panel recommend?
5: Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I was going to recommend, uh, uh, Microsoft publisher, which comes as part of office 365. But if you're on a Mac, it may not work for you. Uh, I think it may be PC only or only included with, uh, office 365 or Microsoft 365 as they now call it, uh, on the pc but it's designed it has templates for a variety of different publications or brochures or anything that you're going to print and uh it it does a good good uh, job of laying things out for printing if you're going to have to print out a uh, playbill that you're going to have to hand out to people so take a look at that canva pages of course can be used as well but it's going to take some work god keely
1: canva You'll love it. it. It is perfectly suited for this job. Very easy. And since you're already getting into it, Tony, I think it's the right solution for you to try. Go, ahead, Jason. Um,
2: yeah, just one more thought on that. Uh, XML, if you end up doing a lot of these, is very handy. So something like even as simple as Notepad++ will allow you to take these things, make changes, and then not have to mess with them again um, if you find yourself having to, to, to make changes or, or make an entirely different bill.
0: Uh, Keely, i got one question about Canva, uh, does it do uh, text flow between pages?
1: Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you mean with text flow.
0: Yeah, so um, when you're building a, a larger document like a Playbill, you may have three or four pages that are going along and they may have two columns on each page, but it's all one continuous thing. And so what you do is you put it into the first one and you link those, those columns between pages to each other and the text will just seamlessly flow from one, one page to the next. Right. It's not something a presentation tool usually has. And that's the only reason I ask if Canva has that. It would be, I'd be amazed if it did.
1: Yeah, I th- I think you're right in that it, it lacks that particular feature. Absolutely. So, but just, yeah, just addressing what Jason said, that Canva does have a CSV auto-generation tool that you could bulk create things and you can use uh, placeholder information and then feed right. in the CSV file if you have that kind, of, uh, that kind of project to do. So that's a new feature in Canva that is working really well for a lot of people using social media posts
0: yeah there's uh you know my recommendation would probably be i i have been using pages since version one <laughs> so so i I have to admit that i haven't haven't opened word or anything else if I have to do anything that requires multiple pages and lots of text it, pages is what I open up and use it and it's only gotten better it just it it produces very pretty pictures if there's there is there's about almost a hundred templates in there and um you can usually find what you're looking for pretty quickly i don't i I don't know if I've ever created my own look in pages. I open up pages, I find a template and I just start hacking it. And um, I find that it looks it looks like somebody somebody better than me <laughs> put it together. Uh, so I would I would recommend looking at pages and, and again if, if if you only are doing one page at a time, I think you're gonna be fine with Canva. If you're gonna be if you if you start to need to do like more robust text edit, you know, text tools, most playbills again, that I've seen or that I've opened up do require the text to flow from one side to the other. And if you start trying to cut and paste text for one page and then another part of the text for another page it's a it's a little it's a little corner of hell <laughs> so 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 anyway if you're if you're doing that so as someone who's the flowing text is a, is a really important part of a document creation uh, next question
1: Our next question comes from Dan Huber in Erie Pennsylvania. Is it too early to discuss infocom in June? Will office hours or after hours have a presence beside myself and uh, ahead, there's
4: a Dan, we're going to have to meet up, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I will be at Infocom. I'm actually speaking twice at Infocom. Uh, I've got a panel that uh, we're going to be talking about how new hardware doesn't really conform with the old way, uh, that being in, in a production room, a truck, and how you can uh, bring those two together. It's going to be a fun panel. I've got a few different speakers on there. And then I'm going to be talking about uh, being the new technical director, using conference software such as Zoom to uh, to create uh, shows and and content, not not being the same city, state, or country for that matter.
0: Uh, I'm speaking at Infocom. I am not going to Infocom. <laughs> so so I'm I'm, I'm going to be coming in over Zoom. Uh, there's a uh, um, uh, we did a, a talk last time in the same format, so I'll be coming in from my from here, uh, but I will be showing up at Infocom. I would love to have coverage Um, and one of the things so if you are going to infocom and people are interested uh, we are definitely interested in covering it Uh, we're experimenting with i mean a shotgun of things for nab that are probably going to inform a lot of our coverage as we move forward so stay tuned for that because uh, i think that one of the things i'm most excited about is covering nab the vast majority of time of coverage of NAB is going actually going to happen probably in after hours in a in a dedicated room we're going to have great we have two live views um possibly three now <laughs> so we have a lot of live views warming up here uh for the possibility of using them um and uh so the the coverage during the during the week will be very very good um, but the there'll be also coverage that is um, you know that we 're doing with shorts and lots of other things, and what we 'd love to do is if we have people there that want to experiment with that, we definitely want to talk to you about what you can cover, what you have time for. But I think experiencing a lot of these conferences in a very kind of slow media uh, ongoing way, jumping around and letting people see it I think is going to be really powerful, and we 're going to look at trying to do that with many conferences. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't checked the schedule to see, uh, but uh,
5: CineGear is usually in June as well. So I'm wondering if they conflict. And I remember last year that was a big problem because they were within a few days of each other, I think.
0: I think that the problem was is that Infocom was right between NAM and CineGear. And we were already covering NAM and CineGear one week apart. And we were doing it in this more heavy solution than what we're going to do now um, for a lot of these. And the reason, one of the reasons that we are moving to a point where we can do it in a faster way is specifically because I want to make sure that we could do two or three events, even on the same week, where we're giving you experiences of those without having to have it be a huge lift. So, uh, so definitely, we, we do need to build a bigger calendar and then figure out who's going. I bet you there's some of us going to almost every conference this year, and it's just a matter of figuring out who's going where and, and how we can cover it. Go ahead, Jeffrey.
4: Yeah, everything is just smushed together. Like uh, Nam, Nam, and NAB. Uh, I just got all my bookings done, and so I will be in in Anaheim for two days. I'll be uh, going to LA, uh, uh, Las Vegas after that. It's just it's crazy. So CineGear is actually the first week of June, June first through the fourth. Uh, they just got done with New York CineGear, which was what last week, week before, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, and it's just it's just a lot of smushed into one thing. And I'm hoping next year. Everything's going to start getting back to normal, where like Nam will actually be in January where it used to be. Yeah. Uh, so I'll only have to worry about CES and then Nam.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I'm hoping to go to CineGear this year myself. I haven't been there uh, for a long time. I worked on an event that was right at the beginning of June, <laughs> so I couldn't go to I couldn't go to uh, CineGear ever, and it was really frustrating. So I'm I'm looking forward to trying to get back there. Uh, we'll see. Next next question.
1: Our next question comes from David Barton in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm using an Apple USB C to HDMI adapter with an iPad Pro to play out video. The HDMI image has a yellow cast. This is consistent across different displays and HDMI cables. Do I have a faulty adapter?
5: Good, Courtney it certainly could be possible if it uh, is uh, one of the if the blue signal is missing one one way to test this is just to get you a uh, picture downloaded you can find it online of ntsc color bars which look like this and once you know what those look like with the cyan yellow magenta and red green and blue and white 75% uh you'll know and pipe that through and if it doesn't look correct to the other end you'll know that one of the channels is deficient one of the color channels is deficient so that's one way to tell. A more sophisticated way to tell was get a a, a scope uh, and look at the uh, color output of it. But uh, the easiest way is just to put up color bars and look at it. And that'll tell you if you've got a bad adapter. Go ahead, Jeffrey.
4: Another thing you can do is you can uh, clean off the adapter, get a little bit of uh, rubbing alcohol and, and get into there and and just kind of clean off all the little tines and and, uh, and see if that makes a difference. But then Yeah, other than uh, doing Courtney's way, just go down to the Apple Store and get another adapter and see how that works. Next question.
1: Our next question comes from Deborah Woodford in Washington, D.C. Any recommendations for a budget-friendly headset to deploy in a small-to-medium corporate in-office environment? Any noteworthy wireless options?
6: Go ahead, Tony. So the first thing I'm going to... Suggest are wired ones, which are the what I'm using. Actually, are the ZS10s. They are they are wired, but the wireless solution that I'm going to recommend is the Aftershocks, bone conducting. They are really good. Uh, my house of worship is using them every Sunday, and they are extremely happy with them. So those are my two recommendations.
0: Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey.
4: So you got three different uh three different ways that you can go with it. One is the bone conduction like the Aftershocks. I'm wearing the Aftershocks. These are the uh, the one with the headset that comes out here if if you need a headset. Uh by doing that, you're actually keeping your ears open for the rest <clears throat> excuse me, the rest of the office and be able to uh listen to what's going on. Then you have you know, the in-ears, and there's a ton of these, you know, Linsol and, and other companies out there. The best part about these is if you look and you get the right versions of them, you can actually get a wired version and you can actually get the Bluetooth wire adapter that you can just plug into these little guys and then all of a sudden it becomes a Bluetooth uh, wireless uh, uh, set. Um, and then of course you have the cans, over the ear type uh, headsets that uh, work from there. The brands that I would recommend, if you're on the Apple system, use the Apple AirPods. If you're on Samsung or an Android system, I I like the Samsung uh, uh, headsets uh, a lot. Uh, The Beats are a great uh, set of uh, uh, wireless headsets that you can use. Also look at a company called Monster. Monster has been making audio headsets, uh, in-ears and headsets for a long time, and the prices on those are relatively inexpensive. I got you where set of uh, monster cans, uh, uh, elementals, I don't think they make them anymore, Uh, every time I fly, and they're great. Uh, uh, Now they have some that do, I believe, have some noise cancellation to them. And then that's the other thing is, do you need noise cancellation to your headset? So these are the things that, uh, once you figure that out, then you can probably get a good set of headsets from those options.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure whether you need a headset that has a mic on it or not. Most of the ones that are budget friendly are are probably not very good. Um, I, a lot of people jump onto shows that I'm on that have those little headsets. And they sound very tinty and they're very painful to listen to for a long period of time. I don't know why anyone uses them, <laughs> like, you know like it's it's just really hard to be on the other side of a call when someone has those those gamer headsets with the little thing that comes up there it's it's not It's a painful thing to have to, to use um the uh The linsoles are something that I've just been super happy with uh, i I have lots of them um, that I have in different bags and so on and so forth uh, they're They're very inexpensive the The less expensive ones, the fifty dollar ones the twenty five dollar ones sound like they're underwater the fifty dollar ones sound uh, pretty good uh that's what i'm using right now and the hundred and thirty dollar ones are expensive are, are painful like they're, they're too big <laughs> like there's something they change the structure of how they go into your ear for me so um so anyway so it's an interesting puzzle that i that we that i that cost me some money to figure out <laughs> so anyway but um uh so i would i would look at those as far as wireless you can also also of course put them into a transmitter themselves uh next question
1: our next question comes from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. LinkedIn audio events are not recorded. It's like Clubhouse. How would you record the audio for the best quality? And there is a link in the chat. Keely. Uh Well, how I would do it again is I would probably use Discord for this. Discord voice channels, if you're fully boosted in a server, are up to 384 kilobits per second in audio quality and using a bot called CraigBot. I would record the output into there and I would just make sure that the audio doesn't feed back uh, to the guests. Also in addition to the other tools that we spoke about when we answered the question the last time, all of those redundant uh, methods are the ways that I would try to get through that problem.
0: I go ahead to Courtney. I
5: might go with an a- external uh, audio recorder. You get rid of all the problem of accidentally feeding the audio back to the guests. Uh, you can get a standalone recorder like the Zoom F3. It's 32-bit float. Uh, for about 300 bucks, you see the waveform as you're recording there. The battery lasts a long time. It also works as a computer interface uh, via USB. And, uh, or also, they have the if that's not quite in your budget, you can go down. This is another Zoom 32 bit recorder. It's very simple, just has a record button you hit, and it records uh, broadcast wave files uh, onto uh, a S- micro SD card. And it has. Um, it also has, a, I believe, a USB interface for your computer that you can just plug it in and hit the record button there. So that's another solution. And it's always good to have, you know, if you're ever going to be working as a reporter or someone in the field, the original one that I pointed to that has the XLR inputs is really great for field recorders. Field, field recording, recording interviews has two inputs. And uh, the 32-bit float will get you through any situation without having to
0: worry about your levels while you record. And again, I don't have it right in in my, as I said in the last thing, and I don't have it in front of me. I thought I might have it right in front of me. But there's a little pill that you can get that is a Dante. uh, It is Bluetooth to Dante. So your phone attaches to it. It is, um, and it looks, it thinks it's a. A headset, <laughs> so so it sends the audio from your clubhouse to uh, Dante, and you can take Dante and put it back in. The advantage there is that you can sound a lot better than everybody else because <laughs> you can now use a, a studio mic. <laughs> so so you can use a studio mic if you have something that's going to go into Dante on the other end, which you know, so that you can sound really good as well as record both ends of that. You can record yourself separately because it's going to go, it's going in and out of clubhouse. Um, so if you want to do it that way, also again, if you're using a Mac, I would use Loopback into hi- Audio Hijack. Next question.
1: Our next question comes from Darren Sorello from Dallas, Texas. Many seem to be leaving LastPass for Bitwarden, but what is preventing Bitwarden from being hacked? Bitwarden also has a self-hosting option. Does this appeal to anyone on the panel?
2: Go, Jason. I would never self-host this. Um, there's no such thing as hack-proof software. If you show me a microwave with an operating system, I'll show you a microwave that can be hacked. That said, uh, Bitwarden is open source and as such can pool upon a whole bunch of uh, of talented programmers who believe in and probably are making use of the software um, and have every reason to, uh, if there is some sort of breach, you know, submit a patch to it and get that patch adopted as quickly as possible. That That's the one benefit that, that Bitwarden has other than, you know, it doesn't have egg on its face quite in the same way that that LastPass does.
0: Yeah, I think that Jason's right. There's just no way to know that you're going to be safe. What you have to do is try to minimize that um that process and try to, you know, do the best you can. The only way to be safe is not to use any of the tools uh that you have out there. Um the, the advantage of the password manager is just that you tend to be safer overall because you're now using hashes for everything. So, you know, everything on an individual basis is randomized. There's no pattern. Um there's no, you know, bits and pieces there. Um you can you know, put a very long password into your Bitwarden and it becomes pretty hard for some, even if someone hacked them to get into it, um, it just don't do anything short. You wanna do something that's 20 characters or more typically a phrase from your childhood that no one would know. Um, and, and, you know, put something in that's easy to remember, um, but it is long and that makes it much 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 more harder harder, to, harder harder to hack into it um you know from there uh you can also salt your passwords by having your own thing that you can kind of have and drop something in and then you add things to the end of it um that could be either the st- a standard code or some kind of pattern that you have that's related to that site um or that that password and so that that can add a lot of um uh, a lot of security on top of it. it means if someone hacked it the passwords by themselves wouldn't be Useful uh, because they don't have the 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 last key that you're adding manually. Go ahead, Jason.
2: To be clear, I would use LastPass in a heartbeat over nothing at all. Humans are not capable of the sophistication required to make long, strong, randomly generated passwords. We are just not good at it.
0: And you know, the we're five years away from not using passwords at all. Like so, so just know that like we're we're working on all this. Uh, you can see what Apple's doing, Google's doing it as well, biometrics is coming, um, and biometrics will tie most of the stuff down uh, as far as you want it to. Um, so so that's going to be, um, you know, the password era almost over. Next question.
1: Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael, Zoom is partnering with Major League Baseball to enable communications from the stadium to and from the replay operations center. Considering MLB uses a 1080p HDR pipeline, do you think we'll see true HDR in Zoom?
4: Go ahead, Jeffrey. I I don't really think that this will be the uh, the and the the result of doing something like that uh simply because of the fact that the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the communications back and forth between the uh the the refs and the uh and the replay booth so they can see what's going on they can talk about what's going on and get an answer if you look at the if you watch the uh the video that's attached to the uh to that announcement that the video is actually them talking like in a Zoom room. So uh, you probably will need some sort of high definition to see a replay and that if that is if the replay is happening within the Zoom or if they're just connecting up so they can have communications back and forth. I have to admit, I have no idea
0: why they would do this. (laughs) So, so, so I, I I applaud them for doing it. I I don't know what they're doing that is, that is profound in this model. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, Next question.
1: Our next question comes again from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I'm doing a live recording of a house of worship production. There will be a Blackmagic 6k for the recording. Should I add my iPhone and iPad for other angles?
2: Go Jason. If you can do so reasonably without losing your mind, absolutely. An iPhone makes a wonderful locked shot. All smartphones are a little bit wide. If you put it a little bit farther back from um, from the pew, for example, it's a great way to get like you know that that magic, um, you know, locked off establishing shot with a little bit of like the first row and then like all of the the altar.
3: Good, Bill. I, when you say house of worship production, and I'm glad you raised your hand, Tony, because I'd like your input on this. Um, you know, that can be anything from a passion play kind of thing to a minister speaking to the congregation. That could be the production. In one of those instances, if it's fixed people speaking at fixed times, um, I would rather have uh, different kinds of cameras that could be adjustable, rather than having an iPad or an iPhone as part of that production thing. Now, on the other hand, if it's one of, if it's more a theatrical type production. Then uh, the ability to get something closer to the action and to move around small eye devices might be really useful. But I think for me, it's going to depend on the shape of the kind of show you're planning on doing. So maybe Tony, you can help us understand more about that. Good, Tony. So this
6: is this is uh, an actual production, and it's a a formal play that is actually in a theater. And I'm just going to quickly show you guys the seating chart. uh, I'm sorry.
3: It's okay. 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 All right. So, so you have a proscenium stage there.
6: Yes. It's a hundred year old theater and I am totally overwhelmed with the prospect of doing this. And I had asked this question earlier of, of Alex and he was saying, because I initially I was thinking that we would do a live stream of the actual performance and we have we've cut it back to we we're, we're going to do a recording and then edit it later but it is uh I'm 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 trying to figure it out because I've been asked to to make it happen so I'm going to try to make it happen yeah so
0: yeah, I think the hard part you're going to have is just getting the colors to match well between a, a 6K and the and the phone. Uh, I would use the phone as a master in the in the center um, and you have the phone be the, the actual master of the of the capture and then because the, you're going to have more control over the 6K. So if you're going to grab close-ups, I would grab them with the 6K up front off to the side or if you could get two different you know, get two different angles, maybe use the iPad on the other side, but you're going to find it a lot easier to grab what you need with the 6k and then have the phone just grab the, the, the master shot of the, of the event. Um, I think that's going to be the easiest way to do that. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Also, okay, so this gives you a different thing. If it's a theatrical proscenium production, you have the option if you're doing dress rehearsals, and I hope you are, and maybe even more than one dress rehearsal, to get your camera and get on stage during the dress rehearsals and do a lot of close-ups of important points in the presentation. That way, you'll have something that you can cut to. The night of the live one, you'll have much more energy and people will kind of be more up because there's a live audience there. There, though, the wide shot becomes incredibly important to capture all that energy. But if you can shoot the dress rehearsal and maybe even a rehearsal, kind of ask them if they can do two dress rehearsals, that's what I do. I'd look at the structure of the play, see when important things are happening, during those dress rehearsals, I get on stage with the action so that people can really see the emotion and what the actors are doing, the presenters are doing and focus on the most critical parts of the script. And then during the actual production on the night of the show, stay out of the audience's way, do wider shots and capture the overall kind of master shot that way. Next question.
1: Our next question comes from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. This year, I'll be attending NAB for the first time. Any pointers from the group?
4: Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Oh, congratulations, Bo! Uh, it really depends on how you're going to be going to NAB. There's many different ways to to go. I mean, we're going as I'm going as a reporter, so I'll be on the floor. I'll be doing all of that. There are people that are going to go as buyers. There's people that that are going for the education series, so they're going to be sitting in uh, rooms all day. Uh, some are getting certifications, so they're just going to be studying left and right. Uh, so, depending on where how you're doing that, uh, the first thing I would always always suggest is get your hotel right now. And could, because the best part about getting a hotel is a lot of them have cancellations up to the day, and if you you can end up jockeying for a better room at a better hotel, especially like a week before, because a lot of uh, companies will reduce or re figure their their room blocks because maybe they won't have as many people coming or or whatnot and you might be getting some better deals from there second uh, have always have a good pair of uh, shoes I always take two pairs of shoes with me just in case because changing your shoes always helps with uh, whatever walking that you're going to be doing from there Uh, staying hydrated always being the uh, big thing. Uh, your travel, figure out your travel uh, as well before and after and how you need to uh, address wh- wherever you're going to go. And then when you're at the show, the one thing that I always love to do at, at, at NAB uh, is they set up these awesome booths where they have people just acting out scenes and then they have a whole bunch of cameras just sitting there and it's just fun to play with those cameras and those microphones uh, or the little sets with the little trains and, and just zoom in on the cameras and just have some fun with that.
0: And go ahead, Bill
3: so a couple of things jeffrey hit a couple of them shoes are very important because you will be putting in some huge mileage think about where you're going to stay in terms of how long it's going to take you to get to the show floor god forbid you forget something and you have to go back to your hotel room and then come back to the show because sometimes that can take you a full hour Transportation is critical. There are a lot of hotels that are on the monorail line that can save a lot of uh, time and effort. You won't have to wait in the line for the buses or the cabs or things like that to get back and forth. And in fact, I used to pick my hotel based on the fact that it was a hotel that was adjacent to a monorail station, and I would ask the hotel to give me the room closest to the monorail so I could get from my room onto that monorail and to the show as efficiently as possible. The other thing is that it's gonna be a long day it's hard to go back and forth there are not great food options on the show floor so take a lot of snacks or things like that uh, and then plan your time particularly plan where you're going to go what are the most critical booths you want to investigate and take the show map that comes in the the guide at the beginning or put the app on your phone even better and mark the booths you need to go to and figure out a plan of attack so that you're not going oh gosh, I'm in the North Hall for this thing, but now I have to go to the Central Hall, and then I've got to go back to the North Hall. Those distances are so great, you will wear yourself out. So keep a movement plan for each of the days and who you want to see.
0: I you, Courtney.
5: Yes, having attended every NAB for the last 40 years, up until the pandemic hit, I think the most important thing, is as Bill mentioned, is comfortable shoes. Get comfortable <laughs> shoes, regardless of how they clash with your wardrobe. Uh, even back in the days where everybody wore a suit, and that was a tip uh, I used to give. Uh, wear a suit, and people will treat you more as a professional. They, use, they see someone coming up to the booth wearing a suit, they go, oh, CEO, executive, person making buying decisions, you know, and they'll give you a lot more attention. These days... It's more business cash, so um, that's not necessarily a recommendation anymore. Wear comfortable clothing and shoes. And the other thing is plan out. Uh, go to the major booths you want to see first, and usually those will be the big booths: the Sony's, the Black Magics, the Avids, Apple. Well, Apple doesn't have a booth anymore, but the the bigger uh, booths, the large booths, and then reserve a day, almost a full day, for going to the peripheral booths, the little 10 by 10s that surround the outside, the peripheral of the convention uh, floors. And there you'll find a lot of interesting stuff that you never would have thought of, uh, that that might be useful to what you do, and you'd never find it any other way other than going booth to booth. Sometimes language is a problem if you go to the international booth, because the people who man the booths may not have English as their first language, uh, so you may have to wade through that. but. Uh, have have a copy of Google Translate with you in case you really want to get involved in
0: any of those. Go, Jason.
2: Um, I have to reiterate what Courtney said, um, and I will add one thing to it. I've, I've always attended NAB as credentialed press, so I didn't ever need to wear a suit. Like, you know, you get that little ribbon. What that means is immediately everyone wants, wants to talk to you. Um, but what I will add is that if you go through the show material beforehand and you look at the booths and you just read the blurbs about companies, start with the major overarching things that you are interested in and then just start, you know, print it out, circle the things, or, or you know, get some sort of plan of attack Um And some of the best conversations that I've had are in the smaller booths. Um, I I can't stress that enough because you will find some of the best, nerdiest people that are, you know, way deep into whatever it is that you're interested in, Um, you know, at not the huge Sony booth or the Blackmagic booth. Those are going to be there. They're going to be staffed. Um, It's really all about the midsize to the small when it comes to NAB.
0: Yeah, it's all right. I'm about fifteen behind at Courtney, <laughs> so I've been about twenty five before COVID, and uh, this will be my first one after COVID. Uh, to um, to go to uh, the couple things, everyone keeps on telling you shoes, but shoes are a big deal. Uh, so the Merrells are the most popular shoes that are out there because they just seem to go for a long distance. But real hiking shoes or or, or long, like really comfortable shoes, are a big deal. Your ha- your feet will hurt. Uh, uh, get a good water bottle. Um, you know you're gonna you're gonna want to have a wa- you're gonna want to drink water a lot during the thing. It's loud, and so what you happens is you talk a lot, and then you um, you'll lose your voice if you if you're there for too long, especially if you're working in a booth. But if you're just even if you're wandering around, you can, you may lose that. Um, think about bringing some teas that you like. You want to have tea in the evening uh, to just kind of <laughs> warm up a little bit. Uh, I either stay right next to the to the nab to the system or way far away. So um, a lot of times I stay at the Palms. Uh, I'm going to be staying in a house with other people in our group that are covering the event. Um, but uh, but I usually stay at the Palms because you can rent an apartment basically uh, for the same price as a hotel next to, on the strip, and so I can you know just really nice comfortable place to hang out in the evenings. Uh, I have to admit, I pick and choose. I, I maybe go to one or two things in the evening, but usually I try at six or seven, I'll i I'll hang out with a couple of folks, but then I just go home. <laughs> you know, like I And, and I, I didn't do that all the time. Uh, yeah, it used to be, I would recommend it though. You got to pace yourself if you're going to be there the whole time. Uh, so uh, the AJA party is usually the one that's hard to get into. And uh, most people like to get into that one. So it's trying to get that. That one's the one you want to try to figure out how to angle into, but that's the only one that we really, that a lot of us pay attention to. Um, the uh, I would drink as little alcohol as possible and as much water as possible and as much warm things as possible. Those are things that make a big difference. As far as looking at at the stuff there, I have to admit I'm very whimsical about the whole thing. I wind in the first day, sometimes two days. I just wind through from the north hall over. Now this, I don't know what to do with the new hall, but I used to start at the north hall and I would just wind my way all the way through the south hall. Um, if I saw something that I liked, I took pictures or little videos on my phone talking about it. That was where my notes. Like, oh, this is cool. I don't know if I'm coming back. <laughs> like, like I don't know if I'm coming back, so I'm just going to cover it. So I'd, I'd have these. I'd have hundreds of videos of things that I pulled out, and this is with the IBC, with CES, with I. As I do that, wind it at least gives me a notes to go back to. Now I'm hoping to turn a lot of those into shorts this year that we're going to put up on our site because I because it's usually just it's literally for me, but I'm going to try to do them in a way a little bit more spend a little more time on them and put them up on on YouTube but they're my notes of like, this is an interesting thing I should remember. Um, and um, and I kind of work, work through it. I find myself able to, in the first day, day and a half, get through the entire um, of event uh, wandering through. And I try not to have any rules about what, what that's going to look like as I wind through it. I do usually have things that I wanna look at. So one year I had satellites, satellite uplinks. And so that's all outside between the North and the Central Hall. Um, or it's another day I might have uh, cameras. And so I'm looking at a lot of cameras or wireless transmission. So I do know what I'm looking for to to talk to it. I have to admit, for me, it's taken longer because I know a lot of people at a lot of booths now. Um, One thing not to miss is Sony's LED wall. Uh, If they do what they've done in the past, uh, they've been showing some stuff that is 120 frame per second, 8K HDR on that screen for the last couple of years. It is mind numbing. You know, like, and, and it's, it's probably, the, to me, it's always, I sit there and watch it for like a half an hour <laughs> because, you know, it's just, just to see what they're doing there and what, what's working for me and not. Try to sit close enough that it covers your aperture so you can feel what it feels like to watch something on a big screen because it you'll notice that there are certain shots that are very hard to watch. Um, and so I learned from that from that piece there. The Sony booth is also a lot of fun. It's what Jeffrey was talking about with the cameras. You can zoom in and zoom out and look at all the stuff. Blackmagic has a little version of that, but Sony's got the big version to to look at. Um yeah, those are some, some suggestions. Can I add and,
2: one thing to, uh, as far as shoes are concerned? Like my average day at NAB is 16 miles. So like no joke, wear good shoes.
0: Yeah, I, I think I do, I don't know. I, I don't think I do 16 miles, but I, uh, I do about 15,000 on, on average about 15,000 steps. So I don't know what that equals, but you know, f- uh, between 10 and 15,000 steps a day. So yeah, it's a lot.
1: Uh, next question. Our next question comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. Why is it that a recorded project from my AT, my ATM Mini has a time code starting at very precisely 1136 319 at the start of the file? Makes it difficult to tell how long the entire recording is.
5: Codecording. I'd be surprised if it, every file starts with that particular time code number. It's probably just time of day time code, which, uh, That's the time of day it was when you hit that record button. And the way that uh, SMPTE timecode is used for synchronizing files, time of day is the only commonality between the two because if you start a camera at one point and you start another recorder at another point, if the timecode just ran from the point in time in which you started that particular recorder, you couldn't use the timecode to synchronize the two. So the two have to have a common timecode reference, which is usually time of day. Where the ATEM gets its time of day, I'm not sure. Maybe it's coming from the camera. Uh, So if you have a 6K camera plugged in, it may be pulling the timecode off the HDMI input off that 6K. And so make sure your 6K is set. If you set your 6K to time of day timecode, that will be what it is. And if you want to know what the length of anything is, just bring it up in Finder or in Windows here. You see there's a column here It says length, and it's in hours, minutes, and seconds right there. So you can tell the length of any video file from the Finder or Windows Explorer. Good, Bill.
3: Yeah, Courtney explained time of day time code, which is almost undoubtedly what that is. Hours, minutes, seconds, and frames. And um, most good NLEs, if you're crazy by the fact that you've got all these varying time codes and you're not using them for multicam sync, will allow you to go in and reset that on in your NLE so that everything starts at a fixed time or starts at zero, 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 zero.
0: And while you're doing that, if you have a smart slate, which you can get for your iPad, or you can get a Denicky or, or something else, if that time code's running, you can show it to all the cameras, and then you can do exactly what Bill was talking about and put go to a certain frame and reset the time code for that frame at what you see on your smart slate. And that will line up all your camera's time code so, that you, can, uh, so you can do multicam. Now, uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from James Brooks in New York. As an auxiliary controller for the ATEM ATEM Extreme ISO, what is the panel's preference, mix effect or companion?
0: Uh, Go ahead, Jason.
2: I say both all day. um, (laughs) All day. Yeah, it's not either (laughs) or because you can use one to control the other and it is magical.
0: Yeah, I would say both. Um, I would say if I had to pick between them, I'd get mix effect. Mix effect is literally adds 10 times the value to your ATEM. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from Nico Kamkolker in New Jersey. I get very confused about which SDI cables I can use for video between HD, SDI, coax, 75 ohm cables, etc. Any recommendations on which cable is best and gets me all the way to 4K and isn't super expensive for distances up up to uh, 10 meters or so?
0: It's a great question. Uh, it's a coax 75 ohm you know, with, a, you know, with the SDI connectors is what you're looking for. Uh, so that's gonna get HDSDI. Um, it, it'll be HDSDI for anything under three feet. As it gets longer, it depends on the quality of the cable. Uh, and y- you know, you're gonna look for things that are rated for either 3G, 6G, 12G. If, you're, if you want it to be 4K, um, then you're looking for 12G rated uh, uh, cable. The way to make it cost effective is to learn how to make your own cables. You can get little things that will do it by hand, uh, but if you're starting to buy them at 10 meters, the, getting good cable is expensive. So you just wanna you know, look at uh, those types of things. It, it is, you know, quality cable is gonna cost money if you're not making them yourself. So um, it's gonna be expensive to, to do it no matter what. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from Andy Kokendolfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on the new Zion MOLUS G60 Lite? With the softbox grid, it might be perfect for Zoom, and there is a link in the chat.
0: Uh, go ahead, Jason.
2: Bill and I looked this one over, and we talked about it before the show. Um, our main issue is that we're not quite sure who it's for, and th- that it's not really clear whether or not you're going to get a substantial amount of noise off of this. Um, Bill, do you want to back me up here?
3: Yeah, you know, we were trying to figure out, is this aimed for uh, continuous light uh, video people? Is Is it still photographers? It seems like it has a good little bit of power. It's a chip on board with one of the large chips now, which can put out a lot of light. We worry about heat with those and we worry about noise if they have a fan system to keep it cool. We do not know that either of those things are in play because neither of us have seen or used this. But those are factors there. It also has a very weird thing. It's got a semi-Bowen's mount and by that, Bowen's is a photography giant that was huge for a long time. They crashed and burned about five years, seven years ago. Uh, but Bowen's mounts are typical out there. There are tons of light modifiers for it. I thought at first it had a Bowens mount, but it doesn't. It has a kind of a negative Bowens mount, but they do have an adapter that goes on the front of those that will allow you to use all those zillions of Bowens light accessories. So it's kind of halfway between being what a photographer or videographer might use that expect those kind of professional mounts and what somebody who doesn't use them needs. So it's kind of floating in the middle there somewhere. Next question.
1: Our next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. A landmark study commissioned by NASA shows how most children are born creative geniuses, but then lose their talents over time in the educational system. Comments, please.
5: Go ahead, Courtney. I guess they're looking for some four-month-old rocket scientists over there. Um, I think one of the worst ways to quench the thirst for knowledge is with a boring uh, presentation by a lecturer to a whole group of people who's traveling at the learning rate of that particular teacher and not necessarily the learning rate of the individual students so i think the best way is once you get past the basics of teaching them how to read and uh you know uh, how to speak and uh, the, the fundamentals reading writing and arithmetic then you just have to spark their interest in a specific subject and there are tons of tools available to the modern-day students. I mean, I grew up in a world where we didn't have the Internet. We had to go to the library and do research on our own and find the magazines that uh, you know had that information in it uh, and do that research ourselves for those of us that wanted to learn about a specific subject. These days, the world is literally at their fingertips once they learn how to use uh, read, write, and use a computer. So uh, I think uh, learning at your own rate is the best way to go. Go, Jason.
2: Although I haven't read this study specifically, I, I take issue with the framing here. Um, if all children are born creative geniuses, then by definition, that's what children are. And in this case, the number of synapses um, that a two-year-old has is more than most people on this panel. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm not joking. Um, and it's because children are designed to to hit the ground running and to be in um, to be very quickly adaptable to just about anything. They assume nothing. Um, I I don't really like the idea that the education is what's wrecking it. Um, It certainly might not be helping it, but, yeah, I I didn't need NASA to know that.
3: Yeah, Bill? Yeah, I kind of feel the same way Jason does. I, you know, I think they're sponges and they, they start out unprogrammed and they they can they have an incredible capacity for learning, particularly about the things you don't want them to learn if you're not paying attention to the, the influences over them. But I do think also that each child is an absolute individual. Uh, in my experience with raising my son and also with being in the schools and seeing the different kids doing well in different areas, the uniqueness of each individual, I think, if you start with they're all the same brilliant creative geniuses, you're not treating them as individuals, and I think that's critical for allowing each child to thrive on their own. Yeah, th- this paper has been bouncing around
0: uh, my my networks uh, for the last couple of days, and uh, so I asked my daughter, who's 14 years old, and and uh, she is uh, very creative, <laughs> as well as uh, as well as you know, her average across all of her classes is probably 100%, 101%, something in that range. Like she's a very high performer and very creative. And she just went off, you know, she just went off about school, Um, you know, so it's just not someone who's having trouble, but someone who just felt like, she's like, this is just, you know, it's just so much stuff I don't, you know, so much stuff i don't need you know and so much stuff that i have to fit into a tiny little box and so much stuff that i have to listen to and so so listening to someone who's are who is good at it just have this like not this isn't working at all was really interesting to to hear from her talking about that of you know how, i don't know how you're supposed to be creative when there's a very small number of things that you you get to do and you have to do write a bunch of things you don't care about and you do you know like all these other things and so so it was it's interesting i think that the nature of school is most likely going to change i think that what we think of right now as a generalized public school system has probably got less than 10 years left um you know we're gonna it's going to diversify the government will decide whether it wants to be part of that or not but parents aren't gonna aren't gonna continue to do what they're doing now um you know and so the, the and it's just because when you look at G- chat gpt when you look at a lot of the other things that are happening what's most important is for students to be creative. And to do that, we have to get rid of all of the stuff outside of reading, writing, arithmetic. They have to be able to read well. They have to be able to create. They have to be able to problem solve. Those are really, you know, and they have to have some basic math, but that's what they have to have. <laughs> then they have to be allowed, given much more time to, exp- to figure out what, they're, what they care about and how to express that, because otherwise we're going to pump out you know, students that don't have a job. And so, uh, and will never have a job. Like, this is what's about to happen here. And so, we just need to be very careful of, people have to individualize. They have to be able to do that. And right now, I don't have any confidence that the current education system in most countries, this isn't just in the United States, in most countries is, is, is able to adapt to that need. And I think that the result is going to be um, just... A lot of disruption over the next decade in education because um, they have the schools have to change or they're going to just disappear. You know, parents will pay. You know, I I had a Uber driver driving uber beca- and she works in a school system so that her kids could go to an online school instead of the school <laughs> like, you know like and she worked there um so so that is the and but the reason she's doing uber and she could afford it because online school is a lot less expensive than in person and this is after covid this was like she's got into it in covid and she never went back and i think covid br- created some kind of rift of of something for parents that's never going to be able to be sewn back up again um next question
1: Tony Mobley is back with this, a friend is lending the Blackmagic 6k for the house of worship production. Should I try to rent another one for production and scrap the iOS devices?
3: I got Bill. Yeah. I always think of cameras a little bit like pianos, you know, it's not the thing itself. It's, can you play it? Or maybe a synthesizer is a better thing. It, you know, you could get another 6k and get another operator and kind of put it in auto mode the same way you can, a lot of those small synthesizers have play me a song, but the. Success or failure of using these tools really comes down to the operator of the tool. Um, It will help you in terms of the fact that you will have, if you have one, a second one that is similar and can be set up similar. So in edit, the footage is gonna be exactly the same in terms of data rate and everything else. It won't be like trying to mix the iPhone with the Blackmagic 6K and seeing a tremendous difference there. But at heart, it's really about Planning out the production and deciding what you're going to shoot when. The story that you're going to come up with is more important than the technology to capture it. Next question.
1: Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Ari is marketing the Amira Live camera system. How much crossover is there between the cinema and the live production camera market? And there's a link in chat.
0: It's shrinking. You know, so I work work with uh, full frame and Super 35 sensors. For most of my live production and that's what you know and, and i'm using cinema cameras i'm using ari's i'm using venice's black magic sony's you know um the sony fr7 we're using for a lot of things and so the, those two worlds are blending ver- together very quickly and i expect to see a lot more of that because you just want it to you want it to look cinematic you know as you do those things and having that short depth of field um the kind of lighting we're using all of those things are starting to adjust oops sorry next question
1: our next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What do you think of Nitro and all the new themes on Discord? Do you find these appealing and or useful?
0: Next question. Sorry, I'm sorry. Not next, next question. Keely, Keely. Sorry, <laughs> I hit the wrong okay. thing. I'm confused because my my I have a key that's doing something crazy. Stamp. Go ahead.
1: It's super fun. Okay, so back to the Nitro question and the new themes that Discord has just rolled out. Um, here's the good news if you don't find them appealing or useful you don't have to use them and what discord's doing here is seeing that there is a market out there for certain bots there's a there's a bot called uh, better discord that you can use to radically change how discord looks and performs it's a bit of an underground thing it technically in many ways breaks the terms of service. So it's one of those sort of black market things out on the side that the the real Discord nerds use. But uh, I I haven't found the need, even though I live in Discord every day, to try to manipulate my visual look that much. I've applied a gradient theme to see if I like it, but it right now it distracts me from what it is that I'm trying to do. And I think that's probably going to be pretty similar for a lot of people who are hardcore Discord users for real, you know, business purposes. But hey, to each their own. Uh, Next question. Our next question comes again from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be any standalone software from macOS that has similar capabilities to Zoom avatars? I'd want to be able to route my avatar into Meme Alive.
0: Um, Avatar... We're talking about, oh, man, I wouldn't <laughs> stand alone software. What, what you could do is uh, you can get video output actually from your iPhone and use your, your Memoji uh, and actually get that in there. It takes a little bit, of, little bit of thinking to get that done, but you can use the Memoji and, and, H, and a Lightning to HDMI to get it out there. So that might be one way to kind of approach that. Let's go to the next question.
1: Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is back. Which of these TV shows has the best production values as well as audio and video quality? Ted Lasso, The Mandalorian, or Picard?
5: Go ahead, Courtney. They're probably all shot on Ariel lexus, but um, I, for video quality, I I think I would lean toward those that have a little more creative input. Uh, You know, Ted Lasso is reality. You know, there's not a lot of CGI in Ted Lasso. So, it's uh, what you see is what you get there. And Mandalorian and Picard all take place in space. So, you know, you got to make it up. You got to create it from scratch uh, to include it in the backgrounds or on the sets. And uh, it requires a lot more creativity uh, on those three. The quality of the imagery, I don't know. I haven't seen all of them. So, I'll leave that up to those that have seen all of them to
0: answer. All right. We are now jumping into the sec- second hour. Before we do that, I, I will explain what just happened here. Um, the screensaver turned on on my, on my keyer, on the keying, so- I have an iMac that does keying <laughs> and screensaver turned on. And I will say the reason the screensaver turned on is because I cannot find where to turn the screensaver off on the on Ventura because they've rearranged all of the control panels. It is the worst disaster ever. Like whoever, like Apple, I love I love you, but if you're listening, The new control panels are the worst idea you've ever had. (laughs) Like it is, it is just a disaster. (laughs) You can't control the length, the time of the screensaver in the screensaver preference. (laughs) Like you know, so so like you know, whoever the idiot was who thought that that was a good idea should be fired. Like literally fired. You know, for that. Like it's just, oh my gosh, I I. Ventura. I'm just gonna say one thing. Ventura is literally the worst operating system Apple has ever released. Anyway, like it's just they rearranged all this stuff that that didn't need to be rearranged, and it's horrible. It is horrible. After after six months, I can say it's not just because I'm not used to it. It was a horrible. It's a horrible update. <laughs> okay, all right, okay, I'm over it. I'm just so frustrated. I'll give you a terminal day.
2: command, Alex. We'll we'll oh kill my gosh,
0: that every day. It's like why did you do that? Anyway, so all right, okay, now I'm over it. Just <laughs> such so is such bad software. All right now we're going into the second hour. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, now we're going into the second hour and, uh, and we're going to be talking about um, this. So, I'll give you a little background. And again, ask questions as I talk through these things. Uh, I'm going to keep on stopping. I'm going to be looking for questions that are popping up because I'm going through a lot of different shots. And so, feel free to ask those questions. This, this presentation can last a solid 30 minutes. I don't know if we'll get to all of it uh, um, or, or it can last Ten minutes of no one asks anything, so um, as you look at it, um, just take a look at that as uh, um, what, w- the background was is that I, the, a friend of mine was working on this uh, on this movie, and it was a little very low budget i think it 's about a million and a half budget or a million dollar budget or something like that, and it changed throughout the show because the exchange rate between u s dollars and, and, Jap- and Japanese yen changed dramatically while we were working on the movie, so there was a lot of chaos um, in that in that area. But the, the main thing is, is that uh, uh, this, was, this was all shot in, uh, around Tokyo. Um, and I spent six weeks in Tokyo to help, you know, to help out on this. It was kind of a fun, I, I, I know this sounds backwards, but the first movie I worked on was Star Wars. And so I didn't have a sense of like small movies. I, I just worked on big movies. And so the idea that I could work on this little film that had a lot less and try to do some, some good visual effects, uh, we did about 100 um, turned out to be about I think 160 shots or something like that for a very low budget uh, uh, film you know foreign film uh, so so it was it was like how can we do this and we had a almost a no budget to do this I mean we had um, you know it's like I think the total budget for all of our visual effects was something in the like seventy thousand <laughs> know, dollars to do to do all of those shots. So, anyways, I'll show you a little bit of what of what they what they look like um, as we put them together. Um, so they're not again they're not ILM shots, but I felt like it was interesting because this is stuff that people in this you know in in our group could easily do these days. This was done in two thousand eight or recorded and filmed in two thousand eight, delivered in two thousand ten because we finished the visual effect shots in two thousand nine so um uh so anyway so, so to give you a sense of it, it's old technology, so I'm going to show you some stuff, but it's still all stuff that is is useful to think about and think about how a visual effect shot gets done even on a on a lower budget so I'm going to go in and I'm going to show you this first shot here uh let's see here, so we're going to cut uh oops that's the wrong thing. I'm all discombobulated because of the of the uh the other thing that happened here here we go. So there's the, um, this is our first shot. and Let me uh, go ahead and see if I can't uh, play it. I'm going to try to get all this stuff working at one time. So here's the shot here. You can see, now what she's doing is she's taking pictures and she's remembering all the things about their, you know, their relationship. She lost her memory. So her photographs are her her whole memory here. So that's the shot that's there. It seems like a relatively, you know, simple shot as they talked. Um, Now this is what, uh, this is what it looked like here. So this is the actual shot here. And um, so a couple things. So this is the track that we used here. Um, so this is this is this rotary track that we have here. You'll see a lot of marks you know, here that, are, that we're using to make sure that we know where everyone's going to be for these shots. Uh, we were using an F23, and this is what <laughs> one of these cameras looks like when you start to tie that all up there. Um, and, uh, you know, here's your, here's your boom, um, to capture, to capture that there. One thing that's really interesting is no matter how flat something looks, it's never perfectly flat. So you'll see all these little wedges that go in here to even out everything to, to even out your track, um, you know, kind of as you, as you put, as you put through it, but even on a very simple shot, you'll see that there's, there's a huge crew on the back end here that's making all of that work. So let me, let me show you a little bit more of that. So and and everybody of course has what they're talking about in the background and all the other bits and pieces. So that's what the shot looked like when we actually recorded it. Um let's jump into Here's the here's the match move. All right, so what's happening here? If I back up just a little bit here, you'll see this. So this was actually done by uh our own Nick Chushishin. So Nick who who uh who is um who comes on every once in a while did did, did this motion capture. So what he's looking for here, here up here are points of contrast things that are in the background that we know of there's a planar track here um these are to see a lot of times he puts these planes up to just see if they're sliding so you put them up against things so that you can see if things are sliding there um and he's he's actually uh, tracking these markers so you'll see that there's these tracking points this was done i believe in matchmover and um, this is a company called realvis that now belongs to autodesk so you can see you know, like, for instance, he's grabbing onto points of reference here, and he's looking for things that he can track, and then some geometries that, that he can see if it's, again, sliding, you know, across that system. So, that's what that, um, that's what that looks like there. Um, anyway, so, let's see. Um, here's Now, the next step is rotoscoping, and we had an, another. So, Nick was part, part of a team, and this is another PIXCOR team called Boundary Effects that did all of our rotoscoping. And, um and so what you look at here is you have to draw a line around the person, every single frame. So, you know, basically, and the things you want to look at when you look at the next pieces, like the hair, um you know, all the little pieces of separating it out. There's So there's no green screen here. This is actually rotoscoping and it is very time consuming. And uh, AI is still working on it, but hasn't figured out how to do it yet. So there's people there. Uh, that are um, that are, have to draw that line around every single person. Most of this is done now in, in India and Philippines, um, but managed usually by people who have did it for years here in the United States. So here's the, um, now you'll wonder why her head popped away. The reason that her head disappeared here is specifically because it's really expensive to do the to do rotoscoping, and if she's not in front of anything, you need to comp. You just don't even bother. So you literally, it's it's useful to know the shot. If you just blindly roto everything without knowing what your shot is, you're rotoing a lot of things that you may n- not need. So a lot of times we only roto what what we need for this because it's um, it's very very time consuming um, to actually make that work. So here you can see the the shot here. So you'll see your head popping because it's 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 being it's popping in where it's important. As opposed to uh, every every moment there, um, so a lot of times you'll reduce, uh, you'll either skip areas or not. You'll see, you'll see that they don't have the same resolution, and that's mostly to deal with it. But when you deal with like, for instance, when you think about rotoscoping here, stuff like this is really hard. <laughs> you know, so um, this is the um, this is the stuff that that is the most difficult, um, you know, in that you know in that process. So um, uh, anyway, so let's go to the next. Uh, Next question next next um next slide here and here's the shot again. Now you've seen kind of how what it took to build it and again, when you watch a visual effect shot on a on a feature film that'll be it will be all of the uh, it, it it's you know just think about that for every shot that you see here now here's a, here's a simple shot he's at he's in santa monica he's thinking he's uh he's uh feeling a little frustrated uh so this is the this is our shot here now of course this is a shot in japan uh we couldn't do that so this was this is the shot of him uh in front of the green screen now a couple things when you look at the green screen that we we have here so uh one of the things here is that you'll notice that this is very even so if we um if we look at at you know, what we have here, uh, the change of the green screen from top to bottom and across the side is is very consistent or very little of it. That makes it a lot easier for us to key. So, especially if you don't see people's feet, which may, is really hard to handle, but if you got a close up like this, a lot of production companies will not bother because they're not the ones doing the key. I had the I was managing the shots and I knew that I had to do the key and I knew I didn't have very much money to do it. So I was very specific about how they, they were going to get this done because <laughs> this is this is the thing with their labor was not part of my budget of getting this key perfect, but my labor was going to be affected by not having the key perfect. So, <laughs> so I was very picky. And what was key was is I did this kind of compositing on site. So I actually was there doing a live composite with conduit, able to see it while they were shooting it and know that I had the shot before they walked away because there's no way I was going to otherwise be able to do it. Now, what's important is you'll see a little bit of vignetting out here. That's not as important as it would seem. So the main thing is, is that what we do is we build a garbage mat. So we pull the key and then we do a max. And what we end up with is something that will go around the person like this and, and through here like this. Because what we've done is we've we've taken the edge, we do a hard key here. And then by using a, a max filter, we move it out um, or uh, we move that key out and we create what we call a procedural garbage mat. Then the, the next thing we do is we do the same thing. We take that this key here, and we um, we build an internal mat here like this. And this is a procedural core mat. So all of this will be not something we have to deal with, and all of this uh, all of this will not be something we have to deal with here either. So so in in so we only have to worry at that point when we do that. It's just this area here that we're keying. So that's where being consistent is the most important. Is to keep that consistent as we go through that, and that's going to make it a lot easier for us to get this detail here. And oftentimes, we also will end up doing what we call divide and conquer. For instance, this is all easy to, to key. What's really hard to key, um, if we go back to this, so the if we if we look at this, if we look at this here, this part here, and even up to here, is easy to key. The hardest part to key is this part right here, because that's all the hair and that's the thing that we're gonna notice. And so oftentimes we'll build a key that is just this area and then we'll key the rest of it because it's relatively easy to key. But we don't try to do it all in one. We're not trying to do it live, we do it in post. Um, and so we have the ability to kind of cut this area out, build that procedural mat. And so now I'm dealing with only this little bit and then I just have to figure out how to merge it with, with the other key that I have there. So that's, that's kind of how we start to approach the, the green screen there. And uh, if I go forward, so you'll see that that, all that little wind and everything else you kind of scan through it to make sure that whatever your garbage mat is, is sitting outside of that but that's, that's what you're looking at there. And then here's, here's what this actually looked like when we shot it. And you can see that this is uh, so (laughs) this is our key light over here. This is the wind right here, so if you watch it, watch the video play, um, this is the wind that's, uh, that, 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 is, that is actually blowing his hair. Um, and then we have a green screen back here that is evenly lit um, throughout that process. Um, and I think we have a, a question.
1: We do indeed, it's Douglas Carmichael, and he's asking, what is the most useful software tool to get started in the VFX world?
0: You know, today, uh, today I would say it's probably uh, Resolve. You know using resolve fusion is probably the easiest way because it's free uh, you can you can download it um, and I think that resolve would be probably where I started at this point. You got a nodal compositor there uh, th- to to do that you have a lot of control it's already built into that so I probably think about i pr- if I was going to do these shots, i'd probably do them in resolve today. Uh, almost all of these visual effect shots by the way were done in motion uh, we Built conduit, which is uh, was our nodal compositor, into Motion to do this movie. <laughs> so we we actually uh, built a plugin that would let us do nodal compositing inside of Motion in real time. Uh, the advantage of Motion at the time was that it was able to be like a flame. It would, it, you know, in 2009, we could loop the video while we were keying it and doing all the other bits and pieces, and it really saved us an enormous amount of time. So that was the that was the key to that operation. Um, the uh, so anyway, so here you can see the this is what it looked like when we actually, you know, shot the, um you know, shot the film here and you can see him sit down and th- this is him sitting there. Now here over here, you can see this is the this this is remember this is 2009. Um, but what you can see here is me doing the live composite. So this is conduit. Here And this is just a laptop. This was a, I don't know, you know, whatever, 17 inch laptop at the time. Uh, we were using this this high tech AJA um, uh, box as our interface. And so we were getting uncompressed in here. And actually you can see that background. It's a little, it's a little blown out, but you can see the background. So I was doing the actual key um, in onset while we were shooting so that I knew that I was gonna get a good key. And the director came over at one point and said, is the key for post gonna look as good as this live key? And I was like, yeah it's gonna look as
4: good. <laughs> it's just
0: gonna look at least as good as the live key. So, um, but that was the key is to, is the key literally um, to making sure that that worked. And so being able to key it on set makes a big difference because you can, you just know it's gonna work. Here's our background plate um, that we shot. We stole this, what we call stealing. We ran down on the beach in Santa Monica and set up a F23 and shot some footage. And that was the footage that we shot. Um, to, to make that work. It is important that we, we did know what lenses we were going to use. And, and we actually, the lens that we ended up using was driven by this lens because this was shot before that. Um, and uh, so we, we, we did use the, the same lenses that that's really important a- lens angle position. Everything is really important to making sure everything fits together. Um, and there's the shot. The, um, there is a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of camera motion there. Um, that you can see us kind of moving around um, there to kind of give it some stuff. This was uh, not the final shot. This was a, a rougher shot that we ended up just kind of, um, this was kind of a test. It didn't mo- end up moving in the final shot quite as much as it does here. Um, here's another shot where the two of them are in Santa Monica um, and they're they're talking. The problem is, is that we had a really hard time with the schedule. Not only were they in Japan, but they were not, uh, They were their schedules didn't line up with the actors. And so here is our male actor with his, with our female actress stand-in. So she's making sure that she's not quite in frame, but she does all the lines with him and talks to him there. Here is our female actress, uh, our actor, and um, the, a male stand-in. And then she comes up and uh, has the conversation with him. Um, so they go back and forth. Now, here are the two of them. This is where they've been keyed, a little bit of roto, and then brought into the same frame together. And here is the background shot that we... That we had there. Here are the here are the two of them uh, recombined or re uh, uh, brought back together here um, for uh, for this actual shot here to 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 kind of keep them all in one one place. Uh, yeah, we got another question.
1: Yes, this question is from Nico Kulker from New Jersey. I'm using Ultimat 12 HD to get real-time compositing happening in conjunction with Unreal Engine. Would you take that route these days or continue with the VFX pipeline as it's traditionally done?
0: Well, I would, I would, I guess what I would say is that I would do both. So I would absolutely use an Ultimate. We actually, uh, I had the Ultimate 11, which was a lot more expensive than the 12. Um, and, uh, and we used it on set, uh, after Conduit was no longer a a thing. We just didn't, we never made enough money to keep it going. So we, uh, for, you know, it it was a public app that we just couldn't, it just wasn't selling enough. So we ended up going back to Ultimat to do these. And it I will say, ultimate was not as good as Conduit. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have as much control, at, at, when, and actually, our key was actually better in Conduit. Um, but uh, but it was it's much simpler. Um, but what you want to do is you're going to use that to preview uh, what you're doing. Not so much. Um, uh, you're not going to use that as your as your final output. Go ahead, corny. Courtney. Courtney. Yeah, you on that last uh,
5: call me Courtney.
0: I know. Uh, <laughs> on that last demonstration <laughs> that you showed,
5: did you have to match move? the background first and use that as your camera tracking for the foreground stuff to move them around to match the move of the background you know and i grabbed the these plates wasn't static
0: the, the the background actually was static so all the oh, movement okay. there is added later to both of them because it, it does sell the shot a little the the, the belief was it, you know it sells the shot just a little bit to have uh have a little bit of motion there um and uh and so by moving it all together it did create a little bit more of a the impression that there was some—it it ties them together. It's a little trick again. I'm looking back on. It, I think we did many of these very, very quickly, and the motion's okay. Um, it's not the, mo- the the camera shake that we added there was not our best work. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no. so uh, anyway, next uh, here's the, here's the next question. Here, so here's a shot uh, in um, of them talking in the car, um, and uh, what you're going to see here is this is how. You can do it. <laughs> That's how it's been done before. You put a bunch of cameras on the car. Uh, we didn't have the budget for something like that. Uh, you have to get a lot more permits and everything else. Uh, and so this is how we shot it here. Um, so this is the um, this is the in front of a green screen. Here's what it looked like. Oh, it's not on the screen share. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Hold on. Let me back up. Uh, so let me, uh, let's go back here. There we go. All right, so, um, so here you can see the uh, the shot that we were doing here, uh, and and being able to tie that together. Or uh, this is what we're this is the the shot we have here, which looks pretty good. Uh, it's funny, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Seymour, always said he measures movies by uh, the quality of their car shots because did they spend, did they all, all the way down to the last detail, did they spend the effort to make it look good? And so we tried to make these look as good as we could, um, you know, with the, with the fine detail. Um, this is the way you could do it. This is the way that it, it, you can attach a bunch of things to the side of a car and shoot it. Uh, but this is what we did. So here you can see the green screen that we have shot here. Um, here you can see an example. I'm not sure if this is exactly the shot here. This is a behind the scenes of what a lot of these look like. Passing lights, this is passing lights there. It's a very popular uh, way to do this. Um, and uh, so you have your key lights. Again, we have a big green screen that's um, that's getting us, our shots here. And so this is kind of an example of how we shot this one. I don't think it was exactly this shot, but it was a similar shot to this one. And um, and here you can see the background plate. So we literally drove around Tokyo with a with a, uh I think it was a minivan <laughs> that we opened up and stuck uh, I think we opened up the window and stuck the uh, F23 out the back of it. But we had an idea of what angles we needed so that was the background plate that we grabbed there. And uh here's another this is the up up angle to reflect off of the front window. So you have you have the back angle that's capturing the um that's capturing behind them but you needed something to go across the front of the window. As well, because you're kind of trying to create the illusion that you're shooting from the outside. So here you can see it's very subtle. You can see that front one going um, that's reflecting past, and the back in the back one in um, the background uh, moving behind them. Again, this was all done in in uh, conduit inside of motion, and and what we did a hundred and five of these. And the thing is, is that we would not have been able to do them on budget or time without motion because we had this compositor built into it and, you know, conduit was all there. And it was all kind of, because we shot a lot of them, it was all uh, fairly cookie cutter. You apply the plugin and then you tweak it just a little bit and then you're, you export. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, you know, grab the pli- background plate, grab the for- foreground plate. And we were able to churn these out. I think we had an intern that we were paying, I think, you know, 10 bucks an hour or something to do these and i think he did all of them in two weeks um so, so that was the uh he just sat there and, and kevin worked out the composite and made it so that he got that one right the intern went through and got all of the shots done kevin went back through and tweaked made fine tweaks to them and i think in about two weeks we got them all all out the door um here's a shot of her running down here mark spencer who's been on the show uh, did, did the effects for this and, um I think that we did this and I believe that the explosions were done in cinema um, and uh but composited again in motion so we have these kind of shattering effects like she's running through the running through those things uh, you know as as you know in her memory here and so here's the this is the her roto that is then comped out of the alpha channel of the render so that's kind of how we had to um, produce that there and one of the things you'll find interesting here the only thing that's really particularly interesting is that the roto was a card inside of the 3d package and why that's important is because you'll see particles go behind her see how those particles fly um, behind her Um, and so those were those needed to be comped in um, on top of her rather than just have her knock a hole through the whole thing and that helps pull her back into the into the shot there so here's the shot again um here's a shot that is uh so she never made it to LA but this is uh, LA Terminal 2. <laughs> and so uh that that's there and so she but we couldn't get her in there so I'll back up and show you again. So here's her coming out of LA or out and uh, she's arrived in LA. So here's the shot of her. Now you'll see that what we did um this was in a parking lot. I think I have a picture of it here in a second. Um but we we flagged off her we flagged off her her um uh her where she's going to walk out because we knew one of the things that sold the shot if you look at this is that she's coming from the dark to the light and so by flagging her in the actual shot you'll see that it comes out and it's much more natural than trying to do it you know you could have tried to do some kind of levels or something else on her to try to fake it but it was easier just to just to actually we already we 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 want we knew what we wanted out of the shot because you'll you'll notice that like for instance in the shadow her the shadow of her um uh of the bill of her cap goes from being soft to sharpening right because sunlight that's really hard to do later <laughs> so, so capturing a camera uh is is a much easier way to, to make that happen so here's the actual shot there uh, a guy walked in front of it um we did not plan that <laughs> So we were shooting the shot. And this guy just walks across our shot. We were like, what? You know, and and uh it turned out to be great. Um, but he uh but he um he, so he walks across the shot here and you'll see that we we just roaded him out. Um so the uh by rotoing it, it turned out it made it great because it really it ties it back in. You've got a foreground element that doesn't expose that exposes that person. Um, you know, so that what was a kind of a happy accident turned out to be great as far as tying that shot back into the um back into the into into the frame here see here so there's the shot there here's another here's another shot here this is her getting into the car Um, this is right we just turned the camera around to capture the background plate um this is her <laughs> see the you can even we had to do a little bit of roto there because you can see that the green screen this was we this was like in the evening last minute we had the camera the, the camera was in the right shot so this is one place where we didn't spend as much time on the green screen as we would have otherwise it's a really big green screen um and uh so then they drive away but this is in a parking lot in japan oh here it is you can see you can see this was like at a hospital where we were shooting we were shooting something else and we 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 the sunlight was in the right place to, to do what we wanted it to do, and, um, and so we just, they pulled the green screen out, leaned it back, we pulled the car in, and, um, and, and built the shot there. So that was how, kind of how we produced that. Let's go to the question.
1: Yeah, Nikhil from New Jersey is back. Showing feet can be problematic. Did you have to do any shots like those using green screen and background plates? What's your approach if you had to do that?
0: Yeah, so that, the, you know, so showing feet is a real problem and we we try to avoid it as much as we can. <laughs> so we, we try to, we definitely try to avoid, uh, you know, so if we don't have to shoot someone's feet, if we can tell that story on a low budget, on a big budget, you, know, you just shoot whatever you're gonna shoot and you're gonna make it happen. On a lower budget film, you just have to know that you're double or tripling the amount of work for a shot if you show their feet. If you show below about halfway through the bottom, the shin, you're gonna, that's gonna be a lot of work because, it's impossible to light that green screen evenly with the the background plate. So you're now gonna have two different pieces. What we tend to do is go back to the divide and conquer that I talked earlier. We're gonna key their the ground, anything behind them on the ground, separately from what we're, we're you know, we might key their head in one piece, their body in another, the, the legs in another, and then pull those back together to get that out there. The hardest part about keying the the feet is the shadows. So if you've got shadows there, um that's what becomes you know particularly difficult to to get um to get working uh, one of the things that we're experimenting with now is using um a lot of these kind of the the motion capture or match moving we've had some we've done in some cases match moving of a 3d you know if it's it, a lot of times these shots are really they're not moving very much and the shots are very simple and we throw a 3d a 3d scene in there um have a character that is just going to be a shadow uh, character and literally just have move their legs with the feet that are there, feet and legs that are there, and let it cast a shadow and then recomp it back into it um, that's a, a pretty painful way to do it, but it it actually is less painful or it looks better than it does if we just uh try to um, fake the shadow yeah, go ahead Courtney, yeah, that was what I was going to bring up is the problem
5: of shadows if you see the ground and especially if the ground is not uh smooth if it's you know rocks or something like that where you have to cast a shadow over something that is not there in your green screen. Right. How do you handle that? Do you have to build a 3D object of the rock and then cast a 3D generated shadow onto that rock to
0: get the uh composite? Correct? Yeah, it's you you can. And so that's where we start building when we start getting complicated, we do start to do if you have something over top of something complex that it has to do it. You're you're building a lot of times we use photogrammetry to build that a rough model. It doesn't have to be very complicated. The shadow doesn't have to be very complicated. And so we do a rough model of what that looks like. We then put a 3D object into it. We then ca- you know, a lot of times then we'll cast that shadow and we can create that the feel of that that shadow over top of those things. It is important. It's one of the reasons it's really important to be on set. We didn't have to do that here, but it's why it's really important. For us to be on set uh when the thing is being shot, so that we're able to uh, uh we're able to take you know <laughs> take all the information that we need uh nowadays, a lot of times people will throw lidar in so before they start shooting, they'll take a lidar camera, set it in there turn it on and it does a couple things. It captures all of the scene around them so that we have like a rough one for shadow catchers. And if we have to put any 3D objects in later, we know where they are. So that makes it a lot easier. The other thing that it does is it it captures where all the cameras and lights were. So if you ever have to reproduce it, you can reproduce it very accurately because you captured all of that really quickly. And it's so much easier that you can take a bunch of photos, but taking a scan that might take five minutes um, can often just capture everything that you need um, for that, you don't have to capture a high detail. You just have to know kind of where everything was. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. I like the PXC slate that you showed before each shot. How did you organize all the files involved?
0: What did I do? Let's see, let's see if I can, um, let me see. Oh, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So there was a couple, a uh, couple things here. Um, the uh, you have obviously you have the date. All the pieces. Yeah, not showing. No, sorry. So this is the this is our little slate <laughs> that we had here, um, and uh, and what are um, the um, MTA was our code for the show. Um, the scene there is one twenty. The shot is ten. It's a green screen shot. It's the green screen shot um, element, and it's uh, it's version six. And so this is uh, you know, and, and then we kept track of who the who the artists were. Um, BFX is boundary effects. So um that's that's what that um that was there. And it was a mixture of uh both uh, Kevin and Alan Hawks that you Alan was on last week. <laughs> so so these are all all these names start to come together for all of you. Um but yeah, so that's that's what we kind of um those are that's what you're trying to do there. We had a you know keeping track of those naming when you're doing visual effects, keeping track of the naming conventions is pretty important. Um, you know, because you can you can find things relatively quickly um there. And here you can see um, here's one where you see that we repaired Naomi's nose. <laughs> you know, so that was her nose was not keen well. And uh so it was so it was getting cut off. And I think that, and so you'll see the different people that are working on it. Um this is you can see those blowback shards um uh are what we were talking about, what I was talking about earlier, blowback shards. Um so those were some of the uh the bits and pieces there. So you saw this. Um here's the that rotoscope that was there before. And here's the background plate that we shot. And here's the shot here. Now it looks like it's further back. One of the things that I did is I painted in more highway. Oops, there we go. So that was the uh, that that that's the whole. Um, uh, th- those are su- a handful of shots we did. Again, we did many, 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 many shots, <laughs> but we uh, but we did uh, uh, we, we grabbed like about ten of those shots that to to show everybody how those come together. Um, and, uh, let's go to the, I think we're almost out of questions. We might have a short day today. Not a lot of questions about the uh, visual effects. Uh, so, um, go ahead and go to the next question.
1: Yeah. Douglas Carmichael is back. Where did the Pixel corpse logo come from?
0: Uh, the PixelCorp logo, um, since we have time to talk about it. <laughs> the PixelCorp logo is, uh, I have a, um, the management style that PixelCorp had was, um, was a, uh, what we call it a clustered cell. So you have um, you have a, a one person managing typically uh, three people like this, and then they managed each of them managed three people like this. So you'd have, oops, like this. And so everything we did or the design of what we were experimenting with was looked like that. And so um, so you'd have a team leader. Um, and then senior artisan and then junior artisans, and then oftentimes when we built these are the this was the you know training module, and you have the the junior artisans would have have apprentices like this, and so everybody had some accountability. The idea was is that nobody had to manage more than uh three people at a time, <laughs> so there was always a it was a, it was a very you know it was everyone had three people that they had to deal with at any given time. And then what we did is if you think about these, um, the way that these set up, we would every, uh, w- w- what, at first we just tried to get, survive it. But as we, as we got going, we would rotate the, the apprentices, um, the goal was to rotate them every month. So they would do something slightly different. They'd all have their own little job, but they'd do something slightly different inside of that. And then we'd rotate the junior artisans once every quarter and If you do that, that means the artisans get to see everything. <laughs> you know, words the apprentices get to see everything they're going through there, and then you would rotate the um, um <laughs> uh, you would rotate the the senior artisans. You know, every year, and then you know, and so, uh, and, and that could be. There's a couple different ways that we would do that. Um, sometimes we, you know, but but that would allow someone to have a very. The idea is they would learn something over a year. They'd learn a lot you know, um, in as they went through it. And then uh, the team leaders actually went up to director. So there was teams that were there. So we had um, at our uh, uh, at our height, we had um, 27 teams <laughs> that were there. So about 200 and some folks and doing different things. And so, but if you took this entire structure that I just drew out and you pulled it backwards and blurred it just a little bit, You'd end up with a pixcore logo, <laughs> so so that's what that's what the that's what the logo came from was the design structure that it was based on. Um, next question.
1: Our next question comes from panelist Courtney Gooden, Hollywood, California. Can you discuss the poor man's process stage with projection instead of compositing?
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
5: Well, I was just going to point out that uh, a lot of times they um, they use what's called poor man's process in Hollywood, where they have Projection screens with synchronized background plates of the background, the foreground, and the reflections in the window and the overhead uh, that are all played back in sync. And this is before LED walls. We would project them all, for example, on the show 24. Uh, We used to do almost all the car shots uh, that way. So they'd be sitting on a sound stage and there was just a section of the stage where we shot the interiors. where you'd pull a car and had three projection screens on it, and uh, you'd shoot it all at once, and it was in camera compositing, so it saved them a lot of time in post. And a lot of times they'll do this on TV shows where they don't have the production budget or the time to do compositing, uh, like Alex was showing. So uh, that is used more and more, and with LED screens, it's used more and more because the in camera composite looks pretty good, and the LED screens, it's hard to tell. But it's not reality and also they
0: can use the the light from the screens to light the actors more believably yeah. yeah there's a lot more being done with leds in this area so if you're doing a lot of it the leds are saving a lot of time and just increasing a lot of the realism the reflections the you know all the edge there's lots of little edge details that we get back the big problem is always if you're capturing something it has been dealing with like <laughs> if you watch a seinfeld is particularly bad is that they shot the the car footage but at the car footage is going like this and the car isn't moving at all and it has a very artificial feel to it so so that's the thing that you always get yourself kind of into when you when you do that process and so so anyway so that's the The challenge there but i think we're going to see more and more of the car shots exactly the way courtney laid out is you're going to do less and less compositing and more and more with led because it's just it it looks so much better (laughs) like it just it just looks way better than than trying to key it um unless the, the, the hard part of it is is that it um it you commit it commits you to that look like, you know, you don't have any way to change that later without rotoscoping. So some people want to do green screen because they don't even know what's going to go back there yet. So that the time that you see green screen, and a lot of times they're shooting it both ways. They, they, they turn the LEDs to green, capture it, and then they capture another version with the LED with, with what they think they want back there. Some, a lot of filmmakers will say that one of the advantages is that you can't change it later. <laughs> they have to figure it out and just shoot it the way they'd shoot it, and then it's done you know, and that allows you to keep moving forward. So it's, there's a lot of different opinions there. Uh, next question.
1: This is from Douglas Carmichael. When and why did you refocus Pixel Corpse from a training organization and visual effects company to an event production company?
0: Well, it really started as a, as a um, started as training. I mean, I came out and that was really the goal. And so we started as training and then we, I started taking on visual effects shots mostly so that and visual effect shots and some production and and so on and so forth uh, because uh, I felt like my sword was getting uh, <laughs> my sword was getting dull I hadn't done a lot of work the technology was changing and I wasn't in it you know and and so I was I wasn't sure if I was going to be as accurate so I started taking on some of that work and so we' take on things like this we took on other little we took on green screen work for Salesforce we took on a lot of green screen work for rev3 and and uh, and in Adobe and that helped trickle back to the training because it would, it, was, um, it would allow us to teach people how to do it really well because we were doing it all day, every day. And I felt like that was a piece that I, over time I realized that I needed to be still doing production while teaching it um, so that everything was really applied. It's really dangerous to go into just teaching something because especially in technology that you, you fall out of touch with what, you know, how everybody's doing it or the best practices. Because you'll do things in the lab at school or or whatever that are not really practical in a day to day basis, and so so I felt like I needed to do that kind of production. Um, in the end, the, the 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 hard part was is it was hard for me to do both, <laughs> and so uh, and so what happened there was mostly that we it was hard to focus on both of those things, and um, the the reason we got into event production was because we got really good at doing live streaming because. We got good at live streaming because I was trying to teach classes in PixelCore. So PixelCore, we, we were doing classes for 2000 people in 40 countries, and how do you do that? And so we were figuring out how to do things, and we didn't know that it was hard to do 720p in 2005. <laughs> like, we didn't know that that was supposed to be a difficult thing. Evidently, nobody else was doing it. And so we were like by ourselves doing you know 720p and eventually 1080p, um, and that was un, very unusual. Everyone else was doing a much smaller frame, you know 360 or whatever. And they were doing it, uh, that's how they were streaming. And we were streaming at a higher resolution just because we didn't know it was hard. We just saw the tools, we executed against those tools and made it happen and move forward. And so, and so we ended up taking on more and more of that production and the, the educational process was harder and harder to manage. And then at some point we stopped trying to manage it. <laughs> we, we first tried to let the members continue to do it and I'd step in every once in a while. And then after that, it didn't, it, didn't, uh, it just didn't make sense. Um, and, uh, and I... I have regretted it
1: because <laughs> it was much more fun
0: <laughs> anyway than, than doing the production. All right. Next question.
1: Yes. Nikhil Kalkar from New Jersey is back. Did you worry about lens distortion matching, etc. Or did you use the same lens set for both the background plates and the foreground? I suppose it didn't quite matter for these shots. But in general, again, what would be your approach?
0: yeah lens lens distortion is a big deal uh, in these shots it didn't matter as much uh, we, we but we did calculate it so when we're doing the match moves, especially, the lens distortion is calculated um, and when you 're on set, we didn't do it for this one because again it didn't didn't have the budget or time to do it but typically when you 're on set if you 're going to shoot practical elements that are going to have visual effects later we 're going to shoot those all the cameras with those lenses against a grid um, and Chris summers, I think talked about this year you know years ago in some of our second hours i don't know if those made it to the to youtube or not but there was definitely uh you know you shoot these grids and you look at that distortion or you record that distortion and then you can use it to apply it to other uh, plates and cg objects to make sure that they really tie back in but absolutely the other thing that will that you have to think about is uh, chromatic aberration so the cut the the channels especially along the edges there's a there's the edges aren't perfectly clear there's a little bit of uh, change in the in the channels and so a lot of times when you're building cg objects you have to go back and start to add that chromatic aberration back in to make it feel like it's really part of the part of the shot Uh, next question
1: yes our next question comes from kyle hammond when in the process do you determine it's better to shoot green screen versus getting the shot in camera you mentioned that there are differing opinions is that a producer call
0: uh, it's usually a producer visual effects supervisor slash, uh, you know, um, director sh- uh, decision. It's not any one person typically. I mean, because you have to talk about like, well, how much does this cost and how much will it change? And, and you know, how much will it cost sometimes? You know, people make fun of fix it in post, but sometimes it's cheaper to fix it in post because uh, you have one person that might spend two weeks on it or you have 200 people sitting there for two hours. To fix something, and the math actually makes sense to just do it later. To fix something small later. So, so it really is usually a, a discussion uh, about what is this going to take, how much is it going to cost, and a lot of this stuff is talked about for months or week, weeks, or months or years before they actually shoot it to to figure it out on a larger production. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
5: Yeah, a lot of times the difference is uh, the difference between a, a theatrical film and a television, you know, episodic television show. And an episodic television show sometimes they'll get backed up where you'll be finishing an episode just two or three weeks before it airs. So
0: you don't have a lot of post-production room there to, to do a lot of compositing. Yeah. And, you know, for period pieces, it's less of a problem, but a lot of times those, the, the stuff is shot uh, for non-period pieces relatively close to it because what they don't want to do is shoot something a year before and then have something happen in, in time that makes it not relevant or makes it off because the, you know, the, the buildings are missing or something happened that you can't talk about. And so there's, there's all these things that, that can happen. So they, they tend not to push them that far out. Uh, Next question.
1: Nikhil is back. Can you speak a bit about matching lighting? Did background shots drive it or did you get background shots to match the lighting that you wanted for the talent in terms of sun direction and such?
0: generally the background shots drove the foreground lighting, but not always. So generally we had the background shots or we knew what the background shots would look like. We at least had research of, especially when it's daylight. <laughs> like when, when you're dealing with daylight, you it has to be, I'm, we're gonna have this shot, is gonna happen at a certain time. Um, uh, there's a bunch of uh, different sun apps that we use on our phones so that we can figure out, okay, where is that? Where is the sun going to be on that shot? The tricky part is, is is it cloudy or is it sunny? Those are things that get much more complicated. So um, you, I often try to shoot the, if, especially if it's outdoor. I really want to shoot those background shots. And in most cases, I want to shoot the background shots before I shoot the foreground um, because it's easier to change the lighting on the foreground on um, the person than it is in the background. But it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes just out of necessity, you know, like that that airport shot that I showed, we knew that she had to be coming out of something. So we, we flagged it, but we hadn't shot the airport shot when uh, when we shot the green screen. So um, so we did have to think about that too. That starts to drive that, but it's much harder uh, to control the background than it is to control the foreground. Next question.
1: This is from Douglas Carmichael. What killed the pixel corpse? And <laughs> and would you ever think of rebooting the brand or concept, possibly with Office Hours Global as a sub-brand to the main PCX brand?
0: Let's put that in, ask that again on Sunday. Well, we'll that, That's probably a little, little off subject here, but I'm but happy to answer it. But, but, uh, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and p- move that to a Sunday question. Next question.
1: This is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the biggest lessons you learned from the production and how would you do it differently if you had to do it again?
0: Um, You know, I I think we learned a lot of of things doing that production. I think some of the things we learned that worked was really paying attention to that green screen value. (laughs) That saved, uh, that really saved us. If we hadn't done hundreds of hours of green screen and understood what it meant, it would have been a much more painful um, process uh, this gets back into, I also, um, you know, I think I had a plan to train more people to have them work on it, which would have been a lot less stressful. Um, but uh, but we, you know, ended up with a very small crew to to put those together. Um, but that's what PixScore was kind of designed for. And we didn't quite make that turn. Uh, the, I think that pre-pro, I could have done more pre-pro, you know, like it was like one of those things, like we were pretty busy. It's a pretty small production. We didn't have a lot of people working on it but we didn't have as much information when we got there as we could have. And I think that that would have been been useful. Um, I would have done photogrammetry. Today, we didn't have that stuff very easy to do there, but LiDAR and photogrammetry and drone shots, all those things would have been great to have when we did, did it then. Um, but we did actually a lot of, th- I would say that there weren't a ton of things that, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I think the edges could have been a little bit better on some of the keys. I think that the, the match move was better, could have been better uh, done, done with more organic uh, techniques. But overall, uh, given the budget, I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, next question:
1: Nikhil Kemkalker is back. The advantage with LED walls is also reflections, and wondering how you solve that in a green screen situation. What do you capture, and how do you composite it in? Oftentimes,
0: you capture the green. Um and you're using that to put the reflections back in. So you actually capture the green. You rotoscope the difference. So you rotoscope one piece that is the 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 thing that's going to catch the reflection, and another one is the background. So you replace the background, but you take that green and you put your reflection into the green because the green tells you where you were, what you were reflecting. And so you put it. And oftentimes, if the if it's a curved object and you're and you're needing to do it, then um you know sometimes you just get away with something. Other th- other times you have to kind of build something that looked that is the same surface um, in some cases with that car with some of the reflections i actually built parts of that car to capture reflections on it so that i could comp it back in and it would actually match the the surface yeah go ahead courtney
5: yeah, and glass is a big problem, especially if, you know, if you're doing a dolly shot around a stationary car where the camera would be reflected in the glass. You have to take that out. So a lot of times they'll shoot that without the glass and they'll add in the glass as a reflection mat
0: later to make we it. Which is what to, we did. To the, sell it for as glass. Yeah. That, that, that part of the glass in the foreground, I believe we didn't have. I think we took the – I have to go back and look at it, but I'm pretty sure we didn't have the window there. Like We took that out because it would have been really hard to composite otherwise. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. If you were starting from scratch today, would you invest in Unreal and LED or begin with green screen and grow into LED?
0: LED is still really expensive. So I'd probably still do green screen. Mm. You know, Like even for this film, I probably would have done almost all those shots in green screen unless someone was giving us the LED walls. There's no way for the number of shots that we did and the the amount of time just renting the LED wall for the period of time that we needed, needed it, would have cost us a quarter of the film. <laughs> so, so it's not, you know, LED is a really good thing when the budget's up there, but it's not, it's not a cost-effective solution yet. Go ahead, Courtney. Another thing to consider
5: is sound, because LED walls a lot yeah. of times make a lot of noise, and you're going to have to replace all the dialogue
0: in post with looping or ADRs.
1: Yeah, ADR yeah
5: or
0: you're, you're an ADR, and <laughs> once you start using LED walls, there's a lot of fans. Uh, next question.
1: Our next question comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Alberta. Who was it that demonstrated lens effects with a large list of lenses for adding effects like flare?
0: Um, who was it that demonstrated lens effects with I think it was. I mean, I don't. I don't know what that specific question is. I know that we spent a lot of time at ILM talking a lot about flares. I know John built. John Noel built a lens flare plugin that, that took a lot of research to figure that out. I don't know of anyone that did it specifically where they put it out there. Um, I know that we spent the first day I got to ILM <laughs> the whole day while I'm trying to figure out like getting my logins and getting everything else sorted out. Stu Mashwood and John were sitting there at, you know, in, our, in my office, in the office, I was, I, sh- I shared a, an office with Stu Maschwitz and the two of them were just all they were doing is looking at a at a, a light going across the across a um, a lens, just swinging back and forth. And they would be like, see that? Yeah. Yeah. See, so see what it does there? Yeah. yeah. And then it was like the whole and I was like, oh, this is going to be a great place to work. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead, Courtney.
5: I know that JJ J. Abrams abuses it <laughs> and, <laughs> he and overuses it in every single uh, movie he uh, makes, adding in lens uh, flares where there really shouldn't be any
0: should they we don't know that we don't know maybe that's where they should be uh it's, it's 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 a look it's good anyway well there you go there's a little visual effects breakdown for everybody hopefully that helps uh think about some of those things uh and um fun little breakdown there and hopefully you enjoyed it uh, and thanks to the producers for all the great questions uh both first and second hour and, uh, and thanks to, of course, to the panel for a great discussion this morning. I uh, couldn't do it without you. And we also can't do it without the incredible team on the back end um, that is, it's uh, always putting this together. It's figuring this stuff out, trying to figure out how to make it all work um, and getting it all together, uh, you know, programming and managing and scheduling. And, and uh, you know, there's just an enormous amount of work to put these together. And we just really appreciate the work that everyone's doing both during the show, before the show, after the show, around the show, uh, just really, it's really a Herculean effort, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we had, um, I think we have, uh, I don't know, maybe we don't have it. Oh, here we go. Tawlok traversal, thirty-nine thousand miles, uh, sixty-three thousand kilometers. That's more than three hundred fifty-eight million bananas for scale. So, um, so that's uh, that's how the coverage that we had there. And now we're going to jump into after hours.
4: This afternoon, four o'clock.
2: We're gonna be streaming generative AI. Favorite shot of that entire thing is the flag that goes over the head. Every (laughs) time I see it, it's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
5: All right. I'm gonna gonna do a job. I gotta go get ready to go do the shoot.
3: So, but four o'clock. Four o'clock. We'll put it in Discord.